The title sponsor of Hunt Talk Radio is Leupold. Leupold Optics are the trusted optics of accomplished hunters and shooters. If it has a gold ring on it, you know it was built by American hands in Beaverton, Oregon. Whether it's a new rifle scope, binocular, a spotter, rangefinder, or eyewear, go to leupold.com to learn more and look for these fine Leupold products at your high-quality retailers. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. As I was walking, I saw a sign thing on the sign. It said no trespassing, but on the other side, it didn't say nothing. Well, that sign was made for you and me. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio on this beautiful morning here from Bozeman, Montana. Uh, my guest today, Brian Yablonski uh, of the Property and uh, Economic Research Center, PERC as they're called. They've been working on some really interesting things as it relates to elk and the disease known as brucellosis. Uh, we'll get into that. We'll talk about what this brucellosis disease is, why there's some really funky politics and policy around it, and how some of these ranchers who own the most critical elk wintering ground in all of Montana, well, in some of the northern Rockies for that matter, uh, why they're issue is so important to public land hunters, especially those of us who really are interested in the future of elk. Uh, and I want to focus a lot on private land conservation because these elk migrate, uh, the elk in, outside of Yellowstone or within the Yellowstone ecosystem, migrate and spend a huge portion of their time on private lands. And there are some disease issues that they bring with them. And we got to address those. We got to be thinking about them. And uh, Brian's group, Perk, has come up with some partnerships, collaborative uh, efforts with hunting groups and conservation groups. And uh, it'll be an interesting conversation. Appreciate you being here. Well, folks, thanks for being here. Uh, I told you I'd have a repeat guest uh, who. I'm fortunate that he entertains all my crazy questions and ideas. Uh, Brian Yablonski, uh, thanks for being here, Brian. Thank you, Randy. Really appreciate it. Love it's, it. Love getting to come back. Yeah. And uh, Brian and I meet occasionally just to brainstorm on things. And uh, we're both passionate about conservation and wild places. And, and we don't really care where it happens, public land, private land, or... We're we need it all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, Brian is the, are you the executive director? Yeah, CEO. The, the, yeah, CEO, chief, yeah. is that the title yeah, these days? sounding, yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> at the Property Environment Research Center here in Bozeman that's been around forever. Um, 43 years. 43 Hard years. Believe, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you and I both agree that we're lucky to live in what I'll call a conservation Petri dish yes. that... You know, the valley just to, just over the hill from us here, the Paradise Valley, which is the north entrance to Yellowstone Park, has such a rich conservation history, 
but also so many things going on today, every day. And then your favorite TV series is, <laughs> is uh, what would you say, considered to be placed there even though it's it shot somewhere else. It is. Uh, the Dutton Ranch is supposed to be Paradise Valley. <laughs> <laughs> and I know right now when I, I, I was saying it was Brian's favorite choice doing that. The, the audience couldn't see the roll of the eyes no, when I said no, that. No. So. It is. I do. Actually, I actually am an aficionado of the show. I think, they, I think they do a pretty good job. But yeah. it's a lot of sensationalized and people write to pick on details and mm-hmm. we don't always have explosions in Bozeman and Bozeman <laughs> or hang developers or things like that. But, um, but they do, if you're, if you follow some of the story, I mean, you know, ranching, how they cover ranching, real issues. Uh-huh. Uh, they're talking about conservation easements this season, yeah. uh, and which is predator compensation funds, like all these little subplots that come in the store are, are real. And yeah. Taylor, Taylor Sheridan comes from a ranching background. He's, he's a real rancher. So. Yeah. And that's, that's why I, as much as we want to make fun of that, yes. and I've never watched a minute of it, so I got to rely on people like you right. to tell me, hey, did you <laughs> see this part? They talked about this or talked about that. And the reason that I called Brian and said, hey, I heard, I, I read what you guys did. Uh, we got to talk about this because you have come up with a really unique approach. It's a way better approach than what I tried 15 years ago as it relates to brucellosis. And for the audience listening, brucellosis is a disease. It has a very bad impact on cattle. The cattle industry vaccinates for it, spends in Montana millions and millions and millions of dollars a year to try and maintain its brucellosis-free status. But the remaining hotspot for brucellosis is the Yellowstone area. Mm-hmm. It's the last known reservoir of yeah. brucellosis in the United States. Yeah. And for somebody who goes back generations, that uh, it used to be called, bang, well, Bangs, Bangs disease, disease, undulate yeah. fever. This was like yeah. unpasteurized milk or uncooked meat was often how it was transmitted. Yeah. And um, ironically, it's a, it's a disease that cattle brought uh, to the greater Yellowstone yeah. ecosystem, infected bison, which then in turn infect elk, which then bring it back to cattle now. So as much Uh, as we eradicate the disease in cattle, that last known reservoir really resides with the bison and elk. We have 125,000 elk in the GYE. We've got 5,000 bison. That's, those are the last known reservoirs for this disease. And it's interesting. A lot of people who don't study the history of Yellowstone don't know that Yellowstone had its own dairy farm Mm -hmm. and raised its own livestock for employees many, many years ago. So (laughs) everyone instantly is like, well, if this is a problem, who's to blame? Well, no one was keeping track of this back in the 1920s and 30s, but we didn't have vaccinations for brucellosis back in that day. And the federal government, the Park Service, had a lot of livestock that was in the park. (laughs) <laughs> not not free ranging. I mean, kept, but so no one. I don't. Has anyone ever been able to trace exactly where it came? Not from? not that I'm aware of. Me and, and and folks do like to they like to fight. You know, people say, well, the cattle brought it. You know, and yeah. 
it's kind of like who shot Jr. and they forget about it. That was a TV <laughs> show that Brian and I grew up with called Dallas. Yeah. Who shot Jr. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. And so it keeps coming back. I kind of say, well, look, it's, it doesn't matter who shot Jr. But yeah. you know, it's it's a here and now issue, right? And, and, um, and it's real. It's real for the ranchers. It you know mm-hmm. the impact for folks who don't know uh, the impact of the disease is if it is transmitted to cattle, it will cause cows to miscarriage. Right. Uh, and if you're in the cow-calf business, miscarriage is devastating to Correct. disease. So reproductive rates in cattle are dramatically infe- uh, impacted. And the market yeah. market value of right. a cow, if you're coming from this area where brucellosis is a possibility, you're probably taking a lesser market rate for your cattle when you go to sell them. Right. Sell them. Yeah. And, and so the federal government is concerned about this issue in APHIS, Animal Plant Health Inspection Service. Mm-hmm develops rules about where certain diseases, in this case, brucellosis, exists. and It's been know. a biological agent, just like anthrax. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. that's, that's the level of national security that brucellosis yeah. uh, has in, in the USDA. Yeah. yeah, and so APHIS, this agency, uh, implements rules and, and guidelines, and... That, that kind of is what gets to some of this is these guidelines end up focusing most of the burden and cost on ag producers in the Paradise Valley or South Madison Valley or Beaverhead County, talking on the Montana side. We'll get into the Wyoming side. Uh, and so it, it creates this really perverse incentive. If you're a landowner and you want to keep a ranch as a working ranch, these rules penalize you extremely hard if you have some positives in your cattle herd. And I know a lot of those landowners down there, they, they don't mind having some elk around. But if the presence of elk causes them to not be able to sell cattle or you know, they end up having the cows aborting the calves... That's a big issue for them. Yeah. And so it's kind of the old no good deed goes unpunished, right? That's right. <laughs> and so that's uh, right. And there's it's just there's such long history here. It's it's interesting. I'm Paradise Valley. If you go back to Paradise Valley, so Paradise Valley, when you think of Yellowstone or you think of the the inspiration for Lonesome Dove, Larry McMurtry's Lonesome mm-hmm. Dove, that originated with Paradise Valley. So there yeah. was a gentleman named Nelson Story, who's a big famous yep. person out here, who came out to Virginia City to mine for gold in the 1860s. He made something like $40,000, you know, King's yep. Ransom at that time, took his, his earnings down to Texas, bought... Um, 2,000 head of cattle, yep. came up with 24 cowboys, drove yep. it up along the uh, the Bozeman, Bozeman Trail, Trail. Red, came right through the middle of Red Clouds War was yeah. happening, and you know yeah. the Sioux and the cavalry were like, what the, yeah, <laughs> who are these guys yeah. moving 2,000 head of cattle in the middle of this uh, this war, and, and brought them for market for Virginia City, he was going to yeah. sell the beef to miners. And was looking for a place to hold the cattle. Mm-hmm. And Paradise Valley, as far as Montana weather goes, pretty seasonable. It was a lot of wind, so exposed grass, yep. uh, you know, south-facing areas and stuff. So that's where Nelson's story came and held the cattle so that he could sell to market across the hill in, in Virginia City. So yeah. so when you think about cattle ranching, like a history of cattle ranching, like Paradise Valley is, is you know, ground zero for some of the most interesting cattle ranching yeah. stories out there. And... and 
you know, really, if you th- and we and we still have de- descendants of the Story family are there mm-hmm. today. If you look at an yep. ownership map of the valley, you'll see there's a Nelson Story, Mike Story, you know, still there ranching, doing yep. what their great great granddad did. And if you're a rancher, really, there's three ways you're going to make money. Um, one, probably the most expensive, if you sell your own beef, so you raise your cows, mm-hmm. um, you know, pass pass weaning, pass yearling stage, and then you you have to go through all these regulation process, sell beef. That's a harder way to do it. Some is you breed for genetics, you know, in Paradise Valley up in um, Tom Minor Basin at the B-Bar Ranch, we have a a brand of cattle called White Park cattle that comes from the highland of um, highlands of uh, Ireland. Yep. Uh, these tall, angular cattle look like longhorn <laughs> that are white, and and you're breeding for genetics. You'll you'll yep. create other herds like that across America. Meat is great tasting, almost has a gamey flavor like wild game to it. But the prevalent way to make money in Paradise Valley is cow calf right. ranching, and so that's where you you breed cows and bulls, and you hold you know the you hold the the calves for six to eight months and then you take them to market and so really it's a it's a business model based on reproductive you know activity of the cattle and getting you know the best price you can doing it over again every other year so brucellosis is yeah that's that's the most you know 30 to 35 say cattle uh, production ranchers in the valley most are doing cow calf operations so you couldn't have a worse setup for this <laughs> to have this rare rare disease in one of the places in america where cow calf operation you know is, was originated yeah and, and it is a huge part of what that part of the economy is based on and all the spin off of that i think most people just assume that every business from Livingston to Gardner, which is if the start of the Paradise Valley, you turn south at Livingston and head to Gardner, which is the north entrance of Yellowstone. Everyone thinks that's just a tourism economy. Okay, there's guys floating their Yellowstone fish in. No, there's a a whole other part of that economy. And here's where the connection to conservation comes. Those people working those lands as working rangers or why that valley has that open space, has that winter range, has that wildlife habitat. And as much as some people want to simplify these topics and say, well, why are we doing anything on private land? We, we can't access it. Well, right now, if you went and tried to find an elk in January on public land, you'd find some, but you'd find a lot more of them on private land. And these are the same elk that we're hunting in September and October and November. Mm-hmm. And so we all have a vested interest in this. We do. If, if you're a hunter or even if you just want open space, the reason those places are open space and not condos or 10-acre subdivisions is because these landowners, one, they have the ethos of, hey, this is what my family's always done and this is what we want to do. But... They, they are able, to, they've been able to find a way to make a living on this open land by converting grass into dollars through these cattle. And so I, I, I throw that out there because it's, it's always quick to say, oh, well, you know, let them fend for themselves. And we have so much at stake here. And, and that's why I'm, I'm glad that we can have these discussions. I'm glad just by good fortune, we're so close to the epicenter of Mm -hmm. all this. Uh, 
and that there's a lot of creative stuff going on. Yeah. And that's where you guys at, at can I call you a perk? Yeah, perk. That's okay. easy. That's easier. That's easy. Well, that's what I call us. Yeah. So, yes. P-E-R-C, <laughs> perk. Perk. Uh, uh, that's you guys have done a lot of things over there in the last few years um in your relationships with those landowners is very strong yeah and uh, through your experience of having been involved in wildlife policy for so long i think you see the wisdom and okay how do we bring other groups in here how, how do we get other people to do this and and so that that's kind of a, a background in history to jump into the, the topic I wanted to talk to you about, Brian, and that's the Brucellosis Compensation Fund. Is, yes. that, is that the name? That's the name that of it. That it's got? Yeah. Paradise Valley Brucellosis Compensation Fund. So okay. it's just for Paradise Valley right now. Right, yes. okay. Um, I, I'm fascinated by it because I think it was 15 years ago or 14 years ago, me and a couple other hunters went to the legislature to try, well, before the legislature, went and met with a bunch of elected people before the session started and we wanted to have like a five dollar fee to build a compensation fund for ranchers because of brucellosis we see how they do it in wyoming with their feed grounds which maybe we'll end up touching on that you, you know if you get a tag in wyoming in certain units you got to go buy the feed ground permit money goes into a fund you know whole thing so uh we made a run at that, and we were told, you're crazy. This is the, you, What are you thinking? For a lot of reasons. So when you told me you guys were working on this, I'm like, good luck with that, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I was excited, but I, I thought there's no way... So that was I'm, like a dare. You like double dared. I was like, oh, so I'm gonna come back on 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 Randy's show and say, yeah, you double dog dared me. Yeah. So we got it done. Yeah. <laughs> so you did. So yeah. let's talk about what it is and how you sure. guys pulled it off and, sure. and what the goals of the program are. Sure. Well, and there's reckon, you know, there, there's a, there's science and then there's economics. So mm-hmm. you know, the science behind this is we know so much more about elk movement over the last ten years, thanks to you know GPS radio collaring and remote sensing and um, biology just like Elk Ecologists like Arthur Middleton and Matt yep. Kaufman down in Wyoming, a lot, of, a lot of folks doing great work. So, you know, the Paradise Valley is really, um, you know, an epicenter of some of the most recognized elk herds uh, mm-hmm. in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. The northern herd, one right. of the biggest herds, comes out of the north end of the park into Paradise Valley. The Paradise Valley herd, we've got a Mill Creek herd, we've got Absorca herd. And, mm-hmm. and traditionally, you know, those migratory patterns uh, bring elk down into the valleys where the ranches are located uh, in the winter season. Mm-hmm. The elk aren't up in the high country in the winter. It's too, too severe. So they come down and now they're on these ranches. And you describe Paradise Valley nicely. It's it's not big industrial ranching. It's not John Dutton size ranching. There's no, you know, 5,000 head of cattle is amazing. Most of the yeah. ranchers there are small, you know, family ranches, multi-generational have a couple hundred head, maybe two, yeah. 300 head of cattle. And that's, that's what they, that's what's there. And when the elk come down it, you know, generally like in this time of year in that February to March, uh, February, March, May, June season, uh, there is commingling of cattle and elk at that time. And that's right. where the transmission of the disease, uh, occurs. Um, often elk are aborting cat, uh, their calves and then cattle are getting into the birth material. And that's, that's really yeah. how the disease transmitted. So when we you know, we've we've done a lot of work with private landowners on private land conservation, and you it was mm-hmm. perfect how you described it, because Paradise Valley is just this spectacular 
valley. There's not there's a more scenic valley in America, I'm convinced. And it's because of the open space that these ranches create, yep. this sort of ranching economy that most people are are not familiar with. So, you know, marrying the, the migratory research of elk with private lands and ranching culture. Perk went in 2019 and surveyed the ranchers to figure out, you know, hey, you've got this issue with elk coming in. What are the big concerns? What what are you seeing? And and what we heard, uh, and and I'll steal Arthur Middleton's line on this is that elk is like the character Pigpen in the Peanuts <laughs> cartoon. <laughs> they come out of the mountain and they bring this whirl of stuff with them wherever they go. And at its basic level, it can be damaged fencing, it can mm-hmm. be damage to crops, uh, forage costs, you know, mm-hmm. taking forage from cattle is a big, big issue for them. Uh, predators will follow elk herds. So mm-hmm. there's, you know, we've got wolves and grizzlies in the Paradise Valley. They're following the herds. Trespass, if you've got more elk, some, there's more incidents of trespass of hunters that want to want access the elk. And, but brucellosis was by far in the survey the biggest really? concern. It was the thing huh. that kept ranchers up at night. And, and we know ranchers who have had brucellosis right. in the valley. But it's like this specter. It's like the Damocles sword that hangs over the head of ranchers that says, you're going to wake up one morning, you're going to see that herd of elk in your cow pasture, and you're going to think, this is it. This yep. is the... And, and the this is it part is the rulemaking that you said. It, there are severe... Right. restrictions once you contract brucellosis. Right. used to be in the old days, you had to depopulate your herd, which right. was like the death penalty. You, right. know, you had to slaughter your entire herd cattle. Yeah. The rules were adjusted to say you could still do that, but you can put your cattle into quarantine exactly, and segregated. And they have to be tested over and over and you know, usually, you know, three times at least mm-hmm. to test them to ensure they're brucellosis free. You'd still put down the cow that tested positive for brucellosis, but right. the rest of the herd, you could keep testing and come out of quarantine. Well, the University of Wyoming did a study recently that estimated that, you know, if you had a herd of, say, 400 head of cattle, that's going to cost you $150,000 at least yeah. at least to go into quarantine. And there is no compensation for that. There's no, no insurance policy that covers that. And there is no state program or federal right. program that covers. So the ranchers really on their own yeah. if brucellosis happens and they go into yeah. quarantine. And that's the biggest financial exposure. That's the thing that would cause conversion of ranches. Yeah. The development that would cause fragmentation that in turn would you know, harm the habitat uh, that we have here. So, you know, the mission for PERC was, okay, let's find a solution. You know, is there a market-based solution? You know, because that's generally how we come at these issues that can, mm-hmm. can address this. What I've always maintained is there's, there's this interesting market for conservation between those who, who reap the benefits of conservation, like sportsmen like us, mm-hmm conservation organizations like us and those that provide conservation, right. like private landowners and these ranchers. And so this brucellosis fund was this innovative private market-based tool that really brings sportsmen and conservationists together with ranchers because the sportsmen and conservationists through voluntary contributions from organizations are the ones bringing the resources forward to stand yeah. up this fund. Yeah. And w- just for clarification, when Brian says quarantine, that means you're not selling any cattle until you've kind of tested out of quarantine. And so if you can imagine having to keep a herd of 300 cows and bulls, you know, whatever your herd consists of, and try to keep those for a year or longer with 
no real revenue to speak of. That's right. And a cost. You're just not, it's, you're, you're just not turning. This. Yeah. That's the issue is um, you're just not turning these cattle loose on grass. It's, no, this is winter. You're, you're buying hay for your cows. So these were yeah. cows that you were not anticipated to have in your herd that you now have to go out and buy hay for yeah. to get you through the winter time. Yeah. And that's the number one cost of, of yep. quarantine or, or hay. And hay prices can fluctuate. You know, when you're in a drought, you're you know, in a normal, uh, in, a, in a low hay pr- price year, you may be $100 a ton. Yep. In a severe drought, you may be up to $400 per ton for hay. So yeah. it can vary wild, wildly. And, and the funds, get, we'll talk about it, but the fund accounts for that. Yeah. It indexes to hay prices. And, and so that's the real consequence of quarantine. If you can imagine having a retail shop and you still had to pay all your employees to keep the doors open and pay rent and everything else, but you couldn't sell any inventory for a year. That's no revenue, lots of expense, not a good way to keep a working rancher on the landscape and keep his lands as open lands. That's right. So that's, that's right. And and that's when you look at the 50,000 foot thing is, is how do you, how do you make wildlife um, you know, wildlife can be an asset or wildlife can be a liability. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of these ranchers, wildlife is a liability. This, you know, these cow-calf operations, we, we talk in the sportsman community about harboring elk. Right. These ranches aren't harboring elk. No, <laughs> they, they, would, they don't want They to. would be just as good to see the elk migrate on through and go on to somebody else's yeah. ranch. Uh, so for these folks, wildlife is a cost. It's a liability. And and the genesis of the fund and a lot of the work we do there is how do we turn that around? Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't mean you have to make wildlife an asset for a rancher, but you just have to eliminate the the cost. And and we as conservationists, as sportsmen conservationists, we have to recognize that conservation has to pencil out for these landowners who are providing habitat at the end yeah. of the day. And that's that's kind of that's the exercise. Here. <laughs> <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yeah. Well, how, then going going into this, then the ranchers identify that brucellosis is number one issue. A couple of years ago, you and I had the discussion on the podcast about an, uh, what was it called? Elk occupancy. Elk occupancy. So you guys kind of started down that path. Mm -hmm. And now that was just on one property. Right. And still going. We're we're creating other elk occupancy agreements, which are individualized. That's tailored to the ranch Mm -hmm. where this is more prophylactic. This covers the entire valley. Every rancher in the valley who does cow-calf operation would be eligible to access this fund. Yeah. And so tell me the mechanics of how right. uh, this, it's, right. it's pretty, you, you do a good job of making it simple, but that yeah, could, it could be, be, an... be complex for me too. <laughs> it's, and it might be until we get our first case, it, it, it could be complex, but to break it down to its, its bare components, it's really a three-year fund the way we set this up. So we had a, we had a, um, a, a research fellow who had a background in financial risk and environmental systems, a gentleman named Ben Foster, who really was the one who dug into this and and ran this idea by Arthur Middleton. Arthur loved the idea. We spent some time together with him. And and then he went off and did the modeling on, on you know, how, what a fund, you know, might look like. Initially, we were looking at a bond or an insurance mm-hmm. project pr- program potentially, but it gets really complicated. And then you become, you come under the jurisdiction of, you know, insurance department regulations and state and auditors, state and, auditors and things like that. Yeah. So we, we pivoted uh, to, to a compensation fund. Um, but this is a three-year, uh, three-year pilot program. Uh, the 
the data shows that in Paradise Valley, we generally would have one case of brucellosis every three years. Mm-hmm. So, so 30% chance that the fund would be accessed in this three-year period of time. By one rancher, if we had two cases, there's a 6% chance the fund would be accessed. Mm-hmm. So the target like how we wanted to pay, that set the goal, you know, and, and the goal was gotcha. 100000 to $150,000 to essentially compensate a rancher 50 to 75% of the cost of quarantine for them. Okay. That was the, that was the bogey. Mm. So the economic modeling, that's what spit it out. That was the pricing. And then, and then um, it was up to me to go, <laughs> go find partners to help, help, uh, help fund this. Yeah. Well, you did that, and uh, even though it's not like it's going to cover every cost a producer would have under quarantine, but it certainly goes a lot further than saying, "Well, too bad for you, right. figure it out." That's right. Well, we met, so it's it's really cool. There's a there's a there's a long history with brucellosis too, where the ranchers of Paradise Valley essentially went through a divorce with the Cattlemen and Stock Growers Association over brucellosis right. about a generation ago. <clears throat> yep. And and this was to keep, you know, this was the whole idea of keeping Montana brucellosis free. And the bulk of the ranchers who were not exposed to brucellosis were outside the GI were like, do what you need to do to get control of this because you're going to wipe out the whole cattle operations in all of Montana, not just. So there was a falling out between those ranchers. So the, the ranchers in Paradise Valley are kind of on their own. Yep. Uh, we helped organize. There's a group called the Paradise Valley Working lands group now that are these ranchers that have started meeting since we've uh, since we've done this survey and we've brought variations of this to them throughout the last couple years and to their credit they sit down and refine things they raise their hand and say well have you thought about this have you thought about this one of those ranchers uh, used a very economics term perk is is rooted historically in economics but said well if you're covering just the whole cost isn't there a moral hazard here if you covered hundred percent of this and it was a good quite use that term moral hazard, which wow. was which was great, which is which is the idea is if if we're gonna cover hundred percent of the costs, does a rancher then get get a little, you know, lax about risk yeah. and not fence hay and not take precautions to keep elk and cattle from commingling. So one way to do that is in an insurance you know, world, you would pay a premium or, right? a, deductible. If that's a, or a deductible or something. Yeah. So that, so you'd be paying into that. In this case where we, we moved away from an insurance or bond product, went to a compensation fund, it's your cut, co- you're going to cover a percent of the cost on your own, yeah. 25 to 50% of the cost. But our contribution, bringing 50 to 75%, will help you weather that storm yeah. so you wouldn't have to eliminate your cat calibration. Huh. And they and the ranchers <laughs> understood that. I mean, they, they got that. Huh. Uh, they got that pretty quick. And, and, and that was really neat. And then another, uh, you know, the ranchers were also saying, well, you're, you're trying to you're trying to tie this to hay that we have to buy when we're in quarantine, but hay prices can fluctuate. So we create a mechanism that would index it to the price of hay. So each year in these next three years, we're going to work with hay producers, uh, try to find out what the sweet spot is in terms of the price based on weather and if you're in a low hay or high hay price season, and we'll set the price at the beginning of the year, and then the following year we'll do it over again, and we do that in conjunction with the ranchers. We we brought that price to the ranchers uh, about a month ago for for this first year of the fund, and two hundred twenty five dollars a ton was what we were hearing from the hay producers, and the ranchers were good with that, and that's yeah. uh, that's the price we're indexing this the payouts to. Huh. So um so yeah wow. so there's so the fund is it's tied to hay prices. 
It's tied to consumption rates. Uh, bulls eat 45 pounds right. of hay a day. A cow's probably 30 pounds of hay a day. Mm. A, a yearling or a calf, a wean calf, mm. maybe 15 pounds a day. So you got to account for that. Sure. Um, and then the duration, how long you're in quarantine for. So there'll be, there'll be monthly payments based on how long you're in you're in quarantine for, and the ranchers will bring all that information to us. We have folks who will be on the ground helping manage that with the rancher. Uh, and this is done outside any state agency. That's the beauty this, of this, it. This is, so this allows you to be as flexible and as creative because let's face it, when you deal with agencies, a lot of times certain laws and regulations don't give them the latitude of creativity. That's right. And so... Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Go Hunt Insider. Go to GoHunt.com to get the best information available to the self-guided hunter. The best draw odds, strategy articles, e-scouting tools, maps that you can use online and out in the field. And you get points in the best gear shop in the industry. Sign up for Insider using promo code Randy, and they're going to give you $50 of credit in the Go Hunt gear shop. Go to GoHunt.com, sign up now, promo code Randy, $50 of store credit. Nosler Ammunition is the official ammunition of Hunt Talk Radio and every other platform that we produce. Nosler was founded in 1948 by John Nosler. And over that time, Nosler Ammunition has proven time and again why so many hunters and shooters trust Nosler. Whether it's Nosler bullets, components, or their premium-grade ammunition, Nosler's reputation at quality shines through. We shoot exclusively Nosler E-tips, Acubons, and partitions in all of our rifles. And all of those can be found at Nosler.com or look for them at fine retailers near you. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is brought to you by Mystery Ranch Backpacks. For years, I've been using Mystery Ranch Packs. It might be the Metcalf or the Beartooth, the Sawtooth or the Pintler. No matter which Mystery Ranch Pack you choose, here's how you can save 10% on your purchase. Go to the Go Hunt Gear Shop, gohunt.com, put a Mystery Ranch Pack in your cart, and when you check out using promo code Randy, you're going to save 10% off that pack and most of the other regular priced items in your cart. Mr. Ranch backpacks, can't beat them. Go check them out. And yeah, it can be done is, fast. It can be right. expeditiously little paperwork. There's no like big 30 page form we're making <laughs> ranchers fill. I think it will maybe be one page or, or something like yeah. that. Um, and, um, and we'll still have to work with the state. The state, when, when you contract brucellosis, you get designated an effective, oh, yeah. her, affected herd yep. and the department of livestock comes in and puts you under a plan. So we'll have to be working with the state, but the, the financial part of this is designed to be pretty easy yeah. and not to be over bureaucratic or regulated. Yeah. And well, that state designation is kind of, I, I guess it's the proof of damage. You know, if you think of an, a regular insurance situation, hailstorm comes, I got to send a, an adjuster out to make sure your roof was really damaged before they'll mm -hmm. pay. Well, in this case, the state livestock, so the, the agency, Department of Livestock, is they're going to do that they're the work validators. For That's yeah. right. They're yeah. the validators. So. Yeah. so, so we're just processing this. So, I, the ranchers are pretty excited about this, and and the most exciting part, which we haven't brought 
brought up really yet are the partners right. who are funding that's, this. That's the so interesting that's, part. This is like, as, if you cast a net that wide, I would have been like, oh, you're not going to catch many fish in that net. But yeah, you did. We did. We did. And two, uh, you know, we, we have, we have four partners who right now the fund is capitalized at $115,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we'd love to get it closer to $150,000. That means we could get closer to 75% of the cost versus 50% of the cost. But, right. the, but a couple of the funders are going to be recognized to recognizable to your audience. Right. Uh, the greater Yellowstone coalition, which mm-hmm. is a, a big conservation organization here. That's been around mm-hmm. for, for a long time. Uh, it's a way for them to help private land stewardship directly. And right. then the Rocky mountain elk foundation, right. which you're involved in. And mm-hmm. um, they came to the table uh, enthusiastically and, you know, they recognize that, that these big, you know, these private, cattle ranches, the habitat, the open space they're providing to keep elk herds healthy and wanted mm-hmm. to contribute as well. So to have sportsmen and conservationists as the primary payers of mm-hmm. this is really cool because ranchers haven't always gotten along with those organizations, <laughs> so to speak, yeah. but the ranchers know that and, mm-hmm. uh, and they're appreciative. And this is a way, you know, a bigger backdrop to this is, is just landowners and sportsmen and conservation groups, the relations, it's no secret, you know, those relations can be, can get pretty raw. Right. Um, but when you have a program like this and you're bringing everybody together and the ranchers see that, you know, organizations like RMEF and the Greater Yellowstone Coalition are, have real skin in the game, mm-hmm. uh, that matters. It changes the dynamics oh. a little bit here. And that's, that's kind of the cool thing about the market-based approach. If the government was doing this, we'd be paying <laughs> license fees into a thing and it'd be redirected and it'd be yeah. governor, government paying this. Uh, taking out the middleman here is, mm-hmm. I think it's important. That's, that's the beauty of a market. You're now you're engaging sort of face to face with the individual and doing exchange and trade and paying for something that, uh, uh costs that ranchers are absorbing. Yeah. And I think no matter which of those groups you were to talk to, it's a pretty compelling case of how they or the, the, the people they represent have a vested interest in open lands that stay open to, you know, prevented from development. And they have a vested interest in healthy elk herds. So that's right. That's right. Well, and the, and two of the other partners have have these interesting have vested interests as well. We, there's a group called the Spruins Foundation, which is a private not for profit charity that has funded funded Yellowstone. They're a big they've they've been a big donor of Yellowstone forever and the work inside the park. But okay. they recognize the transboundary issues that occur right. with wildlife, and so this is kind of their first foray into funding things outside the park that ultimately benefit wildlife that's oh, inside yeah. the park. So that's really cool. And then there's a there's a a financial tech business based here in Bozeman headquartered called Cordova. And huh. there it's a bunch of hunters and anglers, young tech guys who, if you think about like kind of a digital PayPal, like yeah. they help you buy hunting and fishing equipment and do okay. it on kind of digital layaway. And, and so this interesting business model that's tied into the hunting and angling community uh-huh. uh, and they want to participate in this. And it's their CEO is, has, has been a big supporter of, kind of these private market-based solutions. And so um, Dusty Wonderlick's his name. And so we've we've gotten together and they're, huh. they're putting in too. So we've yeah. got, you know, conservationists, sportsmen group, you know, traditional foundations, business putting into it. It's really, wow. it's, a, it's a great little coalition. 
<laughs> that is so cool. And and here's the the reason why, if anyone's saying, well, why does this affect me as someone who's interested in most of our audience listens to us because of their perspectives on hunting. Uh, a lot of people are aware of the conflict between bison and the bison politics in Montana. And most of that stems from brucellosis. Well, this might be the dirty little secret a lot of people don't want to know, but of all of the contracted positive cases that can be traced in Montana, none of them have come from bison and they've all come from elk. And, right. and elk, one, they're much larger in total numbers in the greater Yellowstone region. They expand and migrate much further than bison do. So in terms of a vector that if I'm a, uh, an ag producer who has this amazing ranch open space that supports elk, wild, other wildlife, everything, the greatest vector that represents a risk vector to me is elk, not bison. That's right. Elk are the missiles, the incoming yeah. missiles when they migrate. Right. And so that's why this kind of stuff is so important. And we're talking about it here in the Paradise Valley. Uh, any, anywhere where this reservoir of brucellosis exists in Wyoming, eastern Idaho, you know, even other parts of Montana around the park, this is really important. It, this is, we're talking about the core elk area of Montana and Wyoming. And if you are interested in elk and all things that, you know, reach away or, or all the rabbit trails that go from elk, you better be interested in this. You better be thinking about the value of these kind of creative solutions and how they help these private landowners. <laughs> They're all, we're all in this together, right? Yeah. The ranchers and the elk and, and trying to make these complicated systems work. And you're right. Bison has attracted so much attention. I mean, that's the TV show Yellowstone introduced brucellosis as a uh, plot line in, really? this, in this most recent season. And elk was not used as the vector. It was bison. Oh, it really? was, so yeah. the, the, the Dutton herd 5,000 is up, you know, ranching next, you know, right on the boundary of the park. And they find uh, miscarried bison uh, carcasses is uh -oh. what they find. Um, and and that's, that would be a concern if you were right. ranching right, mm -hmm. right next to the park. That, that's pretty limited these days. There's mm -hmm. not a lot of ranches up against the park. M reality... The greater reality would have been finding, you know, little elk, elk calves, you yeah. know, that were aborted laying there. And that would have been, and it's, it's, you know, that's, that's tough. Cause as, you know, sportsmen, you, you don't want to highlight that elk are this vector for disease. Um, there's an economy, there's outfitting economy based on it that doesn't want to highlight it. So there's, there's mm -hmm. kind of a, you know, because of the, the economics and the passion yeah. that sportsmen have for it, it's, um, yeah. and it's traditionally it's, not been discussed in that context. Right. And, and the culture and the traditions of elk hunting around in the States around Yellowstone park is, it, it, you have to come here and experience it to understand, you know, you're walking down main street. I don't care. Bozeman, Livingston, Gardner, NS, Cody. What's the question? Get your elk, <laughs> right? It, uh, you know, everything from hippies to stockbrokers are get your elk, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that 
that's something that you you have to be here to understand and and be part of it but that those elk are so much the core of a lot of our lifestyle a lot of our culture a lot of our values in this part of the world that i i think that's part of the reason why we try to ignore that they are the most prevalent disease vector for landowners let's just not talk about yeah, that, right? right? That's right. <laughs> well, and, and, the, and the reality of this is, as you described the region so perfectly, um, we're in Bozeman right now. And mm-hmm. Paradise Valley is just over the hill yep. from Bozeman. And the pressures of, <sighs> yeah, we're, we're this elk culture and we, we rely heavily on Paradise Valley and the open space there. But Bozeman's growth is has been incredible over the last few years, whether it's COVID or the TV show Yellowstone phenomena. But, you know, five years ago, you, you would say to somebody, yeah, I live in Bozeman, Montana. They're, Where, where's that? Yeah. Now everybody knows where Bozeman is. Yeah. And so it's only natural, like that's going to spill over the Bozeman Pass into Paradise Valley. Yep. And that whole valley is really in danger of mm-hmm. conversion, right. really in danger of conversion. And that's the cool thing with working with the conservation organizations, you know, uh, you know, going back a long time, some of these old conservation organizations were like the sue the bastards thing. Yeah. And ranchers <laughs> oftentimes were the target, not, not right. the partner they were, they were looking at. But I think uh, as generations have changed with some conservation organizations, they've mm-hmm. become a little more enlightened and realize like in this particular case, if development is the boogeyman, if that's mm-hmm. the habitat consumer, the ranchers are the last line of defense. They are. They're the invisible conservationists mm-hmm. out there these days. They, they may not be a superintendent of a national park or a forest supervisor managing a public land. A lot of them don't put conservation easements on their ranch. They mm-hmm. don't want to tie up their land in perpetuity. They may probably not enroll in a federal uh, conservation program. Right. And if it's none of those, they're sort of not considered conservationists. Right. But if you drive the Paradise Valley, mm-hmm. you know, these ranchers are incredible stewards of wildlife habitat. Oh, yeah. And they may not fit the neat box of what a conservationist is, but if you know anything about conservation, you know how they manage their lands matters to wildlife yeah. and that they do a, a great job because we wouldn't be in awe of Paradise Valley if they weren't doing that job. Yeah. When, when across... A state like Montana, when it's two-thirds private land, you know, uh, so many of my family or friends will drive here and they're just like, wow, I can't believe this. Well, a big part of what they saw were private lands that are still open space, still working lands, and still wildlife habitat. And that's why I, I feel it's incumbent on people like me who have platforms to make sure we're recognizing that and figuring out where are the solutions. Hell with all this old, you know, let's build our own little silos and lob, you know, grenades at each other. That, that's proven to be a failure. And anyone who wants to sit here and say some of those past skirmishes resulted in outcomes that are helpful to wildlife, I can't, I'd have, you'd have to come and show me because I can't think of any of them. And I've, I've watched a lot of them and these types of programs and and how you, Brian and Perk are using the trust that you have with these groups Uh, and one group, I'm not just talking about uh, hunter groups and conservation groups. I'm talking about these ranch landowner groups. They trust you guys. And you guys are taking a lot of risk by sticking your neck out there. I'm sure some of them are like, well, you're inviting those people to be part of the fund. Can't you go raise some money from an anonymous donor? But you're, 
I think it's the deliberate purpose of getting more people to have skin in the game is that's yeah. that's huge. And using that that approach, sort of that market lean to build bridges mm-hmm. and to heal maybe raw relationships from the past and to enable folks to exchange. I mean, I'm, I don't think Perk's ideas are always perfect. They, mm-hmm. you know, I, I try to keep them open mind on a lot of the things we do, but the core of that is being able to, to, to exchange, yeah. right? to cross pollinate with folks, learn something, learn something about them. And I couldn't be proud of the organizations that have partnered here because they've really shown the willingness to do that. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to say it's going to wipe out decades of, of past policy uh, issues, right. but um, I think it's, I think it's, you know, we're, we're at a critical <sighs> moment wow, in yeah. the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. I mean, this is a, with, with the demand and popularity of folks wanting to move to the Intermountain West and the pressures and, and, you know, people who are moving here aren't aren't familiar with the cultures and the no. terms. And I'm sure when Yellowstone, the TV show, of, you know, a month ago introduced brucellosis, you know, folks were running to their Google. computers Googling, <laughs> what, what's brucellosis? <laughs> yeah. What a weird word that is. Taylor Sharon just made that one up. Yeah. And, and uh, so. Well, I, you, you make a good point that we are in the next five years, 10 years at most, the future of these lands hangs in the balance of leadership and what we decide to do collectively and how we appreciate and provide positive incentives for people to keep open space rather than the perverse incentives of the APHIS rules. And we all know that once, it's kind of like, you know, the ship, sails off to sea once you leave the port you it's never to be you know possibly returned again and once we lose these lands you never see you know big sky montana which is oh my gosh you go there and it's it really makes your skin creep a little bit to see what it and i get it right you know i got a lot of friends and clients who make a lot of money on big sky but that's never going to be wildlife habitat again. Never. And I don't care what, what development it is. You see all this, these corridors of high density developments going in south of Bozeman. And there's every day I drive into town, there's another dead deer on the road, another dead deer, another dead deer. The 70 elk that used to be in my neighbor's property, now they got to navigate so many subdivisions, they don't even go to my neighbor's property. I don't know where they've went. But None of those high-density developments are ever going to be brought back to ag production. So we have a narrow window here, and it's up to us. Are we going to take advantage of it? Are we going to take action? Are we going to set aside our biases or the the past grievances that maybe we felt and do the right things? Well, and the popularity of this area only drives the pricing of land higher and higher, which is the temptation then to sell. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you know, we know a lot of the same ranchers in Paradise yep. Valley, uh, Randy, and um, they could, you know, if the Four Seasons Hotel walked in here oh. and wanted to plop a mega hotel down in Paradise Valley, you know, those ranches could sell for 30 million, 50 million dollars. Right. I mean, that is, that, yep. that can be enticing. Yeah, But what's really poignant when you talk to these ranchers and you get together with them, like the Paradise Valley Working Lands Group, is they're ranchers. 
They mm-hmm. want a ranch. That yep. is their identity. That is their being. That's their lineage. They're dealing with a new generation now, how to get the younger generation. And so there's new ways of ranching. There's diversifying yep. the economics of the ranch. Some ranches are moving into outfitting to diversify the economics. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it all keeps it intact. It, right. it makes a ranch resilient economically. And that's that's where that's where they want to go, mm-hmm. the ranchers at the end of the day. They know there's that golden bucket out there. And, yeah. and, but they're ranchers yep. at heart, they're ranchers and they still want a ranch and that's, that's in their DNA. And yeah. so how do we help them? Like that's. Yeah. Well, this, this brucellosis compensation fund is a, a perfect example of what I think are possible solutions going forward in this critical window that we have in front of us. And I'm sure you'll learn some things along the way. You'll probably learn some things that you can adapt and and use in other incentive programs or you know maybe the the dynamics of it in the beaverhead country are different than they are in the paradise valley or it's different in the cody area than it is in the paradise valley they're just yeah. well and i know I, wyoming is looking at this uh, arthur uh, is a big fan of this fund um Robert Bonney, who is the undersecretary uh, mm-hmm. for food production and conservation at USDA, uh, has talked publicly about how innovative this is, that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. when ranchers have elk on their property, they're shooting themselves in the foot economically and innovative private tools, you know, even though he's with the USDA, is, are, is, is really interesting and super helpful and something yeah. that, that the Biden administration is even looking at and, and keep an eye on. Uh, so, yeah, this uh, hopefully we're going to learn things that can be picked up in other regions around the GYE. And, and if, if we don't, you know, if we get lucky and there's no case in the next three years, you know, the idea is roll the fund, roll the yeah. fund over. Yeah. Um, but I think having a case will help us learn and, and, um, mm-hmm. and so, his, his, it's, I mean, you, you said it like Petri, the way we think of Paradise Valley, Paradise Valley really is this Petri dish of conservation innovation. Mm-hmm. We do these elk occupancy agreements. We got a brucellosis compensation fund. Mm-hmm. We're starting to look at payment for presence programs, but it's, it's a place where because of how significant it is historically and ecologically and culturally and, uh, from a habitat standpoint, it's a place where you try some of these new tools out. Right. Yeah, and you you look at some of the earliest work of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, the you know Ohio Ranch, the Slip and Slide, the you know Daily Lake, all the, the Royal Teton. There's been a huge amount of conservation done on the public lands there, or some of the critical migration corridor private lands that now are in public hands. But I I, I always say this, and some people are like, "You're crazy" when I say it, but the low-hanging fruit was the conservation on the critical public lands. And we still have work to do there. But we're past the easy work now. Uh, and not, <laughs> not saying that we forget about it, because there's still a ton to do there. But some of the, as far as if you're ranking where the greatest risks to wildlife and the things we love about wildlife and, and landscapes... The places where the risks now have become a higher priority are on a lot of private lands. It used to be, you know, those always existed, but there weren't the financial and economic pressures that were converting so much private land to, you know, subdivisions or whatever it could be. 
Now that's flipping where the, the money that is coming here, when you have hedge funds coming here and buying ranches and doing whatever kind of, you know, financial tricks they do, uh, that's a lot of money. That, that's a hard temptation. Uh, okay. The other day it was 39 below when I started my truck. And I know some of those ranchers had to get out, fire up the tractor, hook up. Run on diesel, which yeah. is gums up pretty yeah. good in 40 below. <laughs> yeah. And what they have to do, they had to go and roll bales out to start feeding cattle. Now, when you're doing that and you finally get the tractor running and you got your stormy pulled over your ears and you got a snot sickle hanging down off your mustache and your cheeks are tight and frozen, you got to be thinking to yourself once in a while, you know that guy who came to buy this place for $35 million last summer? I, I better go look for his phone number. And if you think that's not happening, folks, it is happening with regularity, right? The unsolicited and sometimes solicited uh, money that is being waved in front of these people. Vacation for a rancher, like, is not in the dictionary. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, when we met with ranchers early. I remember, you know, one of our mutual friends, Dreska Kinky, who's a rancher over there, mm -hmm. sat with me in the old saloon, and she's like, Brian... You know, we ranchers, we're working 365 days a year, 24-7. Yeah. I can tell you what the problems are, but I can't sit down. We're, we're working too hard to develop the solutions. Right. That's why we need groups like Perk and others to help us think creatively. You, you know, we can tell you what we're experiencing, but yeah. we need the creative minds to come together and, and help us out. But it's a hard, it's a hard life. Yeah. I ask people to think about this. Think about if the elk could not migrate out of Yellowstone. Because whether it's development, whether it's whatever, yeah, they'd still try. But over time, attrition would, you know, the, a fraction of elk would be able to do that. What would that do to the quality of life? Maybe not just here, but America values, the, for, for whatever reason, in every part of our society, there are like these crucibles of just, they, they sit higher on the mantle than others. Yellowstone and its wildlife complex sits as high on the mantle of conservation, of America's view of who we are and what we stand for in terms of conservation as any place there or the, that we have, any landscape. And I know people are going to be like, oh, Newberg, you're just, you know, yelling fire. I'm, what I am saying is I know these people. I have, I've been a CPA here. A lot of them were clients these pressures are, are real and it's, we need to highlight solutions like you guys are coming up with. Mm -hmm. And who knows what the solution will be in Wyoming? Who knows what the solution will be on maybe a migration issue instead of a disease issue? But the point is, we got to look at it differently than we have in the past. Right. And, right. and the distinction between public and private land, you know, to some extent, you can bring a regulatory model to public land because <laughs> yeah. we, the collective body, own own the public land, and that you know so much of that first few generations of conservation, the history of conservation in America, was focused on public land right. and creating national parks and national forests. Great and stuff, and great stuff. And but now, as you as you rightly note, when you look beyond that, and wildlife looks beyond that, they don't mm -hmm. they don't respect ownership patterns no, and no. fence line. They don't know if they're moving from 
park to forest service to state to ranch land. Uh, as we look at that next, it's going to, it's a different tool. You know, these lands are in private ownership and the high handed regulatory model that might've been appropriate in a public land sphere. It's not going to work with these ranchers. No. Not going to work. It's got to be incentive driven, incentive based. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as we said before, it's got to pencil out for these ranchers. It's got to make some economic sense at the end of the day too. So it's just a different, it's a different approach and mindset of how the conservation world has traditionally, traditionally looked at things. Mm-hmm. No, and I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of it. I, I, however I can, can help in, in other ways. And I know that you and other groups are working on migration corridor issues. Uh, you know, when I sat on the board of the Elk Foundation and Dr. Middleton, Arthur Middleton came and gave us some of his preliminary research of how critical some of these private lands were to uh, uh, the map he showed us that really struck with me was there's these elk that come towards Cody, Wyoming, and they come out of the east side of the park. And there are some corridors there that they travel through on private land that it's like, what do we got to do? <laughs> the price per acre to conserve that corridor right. can be really high and it would still make sense. Right. But we're, we have the benefit, like you said, of new tracking technology, new yeah. GPS technology. We got this continual body of knowledge that's yeah. evolving about and, migrations. And we can learn. We can learn from past conservation experiences. Uh, you know, one of the, the big conservation stories in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem was reintroduction of wolves yeah. into the ecosystem in 1995 as, as you know, a benign an issue as you could find, right? Like the most controversial, <laughs> like we yeah. could do a whole episode on that and the yeah. history of that. But, um, but there were, you know, the, the entities that were involved in the reintroduction of wolves knew that that was going to create depredation issues with ranchers mm-hmm. right. and sheep herders and they would have to attend these hearings you know where folks were out there with the pitchforks you know <laughs> and uh you know there was a gentleman named hank fisher who was with defenders of wildlife at the time mm-hmm. who who understood that you know in part the real story was wolf recovery was going to be done on the backs of ranchers there were going to be casualties as ranch as the mm-hmm. wolves dispersed uh, out of yellowstone national park and hit some of these ranches and so he was the guy who came up with this idea of let's create a wolf compensation fund mm-hmm. um these days it's mostly run by government. They're called livestock depredation right. funds. You know, Montana has one. But back in the day, it was Defenders of Wildlife out there, you know, who was who has not been seen as the friend of the rancher, <laughs> but that an organization was out there raising private money and private capital for people who were who were bought into wolf recovery to compensate those that wolf recovery is going to be done on the backs of. And, yeah. and so a model like that is that was the inspiration for the Spurcellosis Compensation hmm. Fund. So we we can learn, you know, yeah. we can learn from some of these tools and expand them and move them around and in huh. a way that, in a way that works. And it's not going to, you know, at the end of the day, people say, is this going to buy tolerance or ranchers going to say, yeah. yeah, yeah, bring on the elk, bring on the elk. Yeah. Um, you know, and maybe in some cases there's a tolerance adjustment, but in most cases, this is about addressing costs to yeah. ranchers at the end, you know, and, and the realistic ways to do that. Yeah. And addressing costs contributes to their ability to stay on those lands and keep them as That's open right. space. That's right. And every uh, rancher is different. You know, we did, you had mentioned this elk occupancy agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a deal that we worked on with the Greater Yellowstone Coalition to create a fence on a ranch that would separate cattle and elk. 
And on the other side of the fence, the rancher had sort of agreed to give up part of their ranch to the elk, mm-hmm. an area that the elk had historically used, and to do habitat restoration on there. So it wasn't a conservation easement. We were locked in forever and ever, but it was 500 acres of winter elk range that the rancher was going to, you know, eliminate cheatgrass, be more intense about cheatgrass elimination, conifer control, uh, prescribed burn, mm-hmm. you know, and, and keeping their cows out of this so native bunch grass could grow back. We, we were, we've talked to other ranchers and said, is there something similar we can do on your ranch? And one of the ranchers we spoke to. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. You'll find courses by my buddy Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, me, Hank Shaw, John Barklow, Jamie Teagan, and the list is growing and growing. And here's the other cool part. My buddy Corey, who founded the University of Elk Hunting course, the popular course that is everything known about elk hunting, his course is now part of your subscription to Outdoor Class. So, all for one subscription, at one price, you get all of the Outdoor Class courses, plus Corey's University of Elk Hunting. Go to OutdoorClass.com, use promo code RANDY when you sign up, and you're going to save 20%. This will be great information for any hunter. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class, an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. Outdoor Class now includes the University of Elk Hunting course from my buddy Corey Jacobson. All these courses in one single subscription at one price. Go to OutdoorClass.com and use promo code RANDY to save 20% when you sign up. This is great information for any hunter at any level. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Tough. And I know some of you are asking me, Randy, why Mountain Tough? Well, I'm training for the biggest hunt of my life in August of 2024. And now that I'm into this, I wish I would have done this when I was 39 instead of waiting until I'm 59. I've already started the on-ramping, and I'm progressing through the Bodyweight Foundation program, and I'm feeling so much better. I'm feeling better mentally, physically. I'm accountable to myself, and I'm pretty excited about it. So if you're interested in making an investment in your health and your hunting, go out to Mountain Tough. Use promo code RANDY, and when you sign up, you get 14 days to start with. They'll add another 30 days to your free trial when you use promo code RANDY. We had talked about a fence, and, and the rancher came back to us and was very honest and said, there, it's just not going to, Brian, it's not going to work. You know, we're right down on the river. The elk will figure out a way to get around <laughs> these fences here and commingle with our cattle. They'll go yeah. in the river, and we're not going to put a fence in the river. Right. So it's just, it was kind of desperation. Threw up their hands, and um, with one of our conservation partners, you know, the question was, well, but these elk have a cost, fencing. They, mm-hmm. What if we pay you for the presence of elk? I mean, elk mm-hmm. are essentially living rent-free right. on these lands. Yeah. So what's elk rent, right? How do you 
this concept of elk rent. And so one of the things we're doing right now is we're partnering with a, a technology company that is developing, taking this artificial intelligence and putting them into game cameras. So the traditional game right. camera would take a picture of grass waving in the wind. Right. They figure out a way to, to eliminate that so you're not going through thousands and thousands <laughs> of pictures of grass. Uh, and they're also teaching the camera to be smart. So the camera will learn through the cloud, through imaging and what you're teaching it to only take photos of what you want it to take. In this wow. case, it would be elk, right? And so what we would do is we'd marry this, marry this idea of paying ranchers for having elk on their property with this technology, and we could create a, a metric, a unit of measurement called an elk day. So with this camera <laughs> technology on this ranch, we can say, well, wow. on this day, you had 50 or more elk or whatever the number yeah. is. That's an elk day. And we'll pay you for an elk day. You know, $50 maybe we'll pay you per day for elk day, yeah. which would recognize the seasonal, you know, the migratory patterns are going to be years where there, the times of the year where the elk are there and times of the year where the elk no. aren't there. But using this camera technology and then going out and saying, look, this is going to help compensate the rancher for those, um, direct costs or indirect costs that they can't really quantify, but right. we know that they're knocking the fences down and eating the forage for cattle. And this will be some way to offset those costs to that ranch using technology. And so that would be an elk occupancy agreement. We could yeah. get private partners, conservation and sportsmen to come in and pay for pay into something like that. Yeah. Wow. I, I didn't know such technology yeah. even existed. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Huh. Yeah. Well, these are... Uh, you, we're we're lucky that these opportunities still exist for us to make a difference. Uh, it's great that this kind of technology is that, and you know what they're finding out on migrations. There's a whole uh, body of of new ideas that's coming from all this stuff, or new possibilities, I guess we could call it. But they all require funding. That's right, and so. Uh, to the credit of you and Greater Yellowstone and RMEF and others uh, who pitched in on this, none of these ideas, they can be great ideas, but without funding, uh, they don't happen. And, but what uh, I found is innovation excites folks. Oh, yeah. I think these organizations, to their credit, when something is innovative and it's cutting edge and you're you're on the cusp of creating new conservation tools, mm -hmm. uh, folks want to buy into it. It's like a startup. Oh, oh right? yeah. This is, I mean, yeah. who doesn't want to get up in the morning and be part of something that solves a problem versus having to go into the office and, you know, take another swing at the axe to bury a hatchet again? That, that's, that, right. that's draining. That's right. The going the other direction, solving problems and creating new ideas and new solutions. That's invigorating. That's exciting. <laughs> That's, that puts a smile on people's face, makes them work harder, think harder. Uh, so I'm, I'm thankful that, that we have those because we do have some examples of, you know, Wyoming has had to use a different model. And I say has had to just because of, how things evolved in the history of Wyoming. There, there's a lot of good history out there about how they ended up with feed grounds. It's not like everybody said, oh, we want feed grounds. We want to consolidate all these elk. Uh, so I tell people in Montana, you know, think about, try a little harder here. Put down your, your you know, maybe preconceived ideas. Have a more open mind because some of the alternatives start looking like the Wyoming feed ground model. And whether it's their agency, whether it's their landowners, their hunters, none of them would like to have a feed ground solution. But it kind of evolved as 
the remaining solution because they lost a lot of their wintering ground to this place called Jackson. They lost a lot of their migration corridors. And then you start doing this and you start habituating elk. And then there were pressures to keep elk in one place. So they weren't going and hammering the haystacks and the the ag lands. And so a lot of people want to look at Wyoming and say, oh, you guys decided to do this. No, it was just like, what's the best solution? What's the the all the solutions were imperfect. This one's maybe less imperfect. <laughs> and you look at just using the brucellosis issue on their feed grounds, even though they spend a lot of money, even trying to vaccinate a lot of those elk on the feed grounds, they still have very high seroprevalence rates because of the consolidation of elk in tighter areas. We don't, we are lucky in Montana, we have a dispersal, a more natural dispersal, but it's happening on private lands. There, the feed grounds are on public lands. Here, we have a wide dispersal on private lands, which has some benefits that are pretty obvious to see. Um, and what's the, so, what's, you know, the original feed ground was the National Elk Refuge right, outside exactly. of Jackson. I mean, yep. that's, and they still artificially feed feed mm-hmm. those elk right outside of right outside of town there like yeah. a great conservation <laughs> you know <laughs> locale that is uh, you know also and and we think you know in the GYE obviously uh, brucellosis is a disease a topical disease but looking at those feed grounds CWD uh, as a as a reservoir for CWD and transmission for CWD yeah uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm working on a podcast on the CWD issue in Wyoming because of its, you know, among Colorado and Wyoming are two states with the highest prevalence of, of CWD in their ungulates, uh, cervids. Uh, and the fact that Wyoming has feed grounds complicates that discussion a lot. And, yeah. and, I, and, and Perk, we're, we were talking about this before we, we went live, but... Uh, we we likely will get into a study looking at what would happen if you you did shut a feed ground down. What would mm-hmm. the elk dispersal be like? How would that right. work? You know, and there's there are some examples. There have been some feed grounds that have been shut down that um, we're going to yeah. work with the Bryn School of Environment at, at University of uh, California Santa Barbara. Uh-huh. The number of students who are really interested in looking at this. So um, that's an area we might venture into. But it's a yeah, I mean it's fraught with landmines and history yeah and it's, it's and so we're lucky in montana we haven't had to go that route but if we end up losing all of our migration corridors if we end up having issues uh, whether it's development whether it's just intolerance of elk what other options are the options we have are going to start looking more like what wyoming had to do or we just accept that we're not going to have many elk Right. And the corresponding complex of scavengers and predators and uh, everything else. Because elk are the, they're they're the lifeblood of the Yellowstone region. And anyone who doubts that, uh, just... That's right. (laughs) Just come here and and look (laughs) around. Uh, So it's, it's really a complicated thing, but it's also that complication creates so much richness to what the elk world provides to all of us who live here, who think about Yellowstone. And that's why it's worth working so hard to, to do the things like 
you guys are doing. Amen. Yeah. What else you got? You got anything else on your on your radar stream, Brian, about private land conservation that someday we're gonna have to do another podcast on? <laughs> well, I you know, it's um you know, in the conservation community, there is a big discussion about biodiversity. You know, <clears throat> climate change has been an issue and it's kind of blotted out the sun. Right. And so a lot of the the things that organizations are working on are re- related to conservation and or to climate change. And um, when the Biden administration, you know, announced its 30 by 30 initiative right. in America, the beautiful, it was tied to addressing climate climate issues. But when I talk to folks in the Fish and Wildlife Service and in the conservation organization community, it feels like the narrative is is pivoting a little bit. Climate change is a real issue and folks are going to be tackling it, but biodiversity comes up over and over again as, mm-hmm. as a theme. And when we look at uh, the biological hotspots around the nation where there's, where there's the most biodiversity, mm-hmm. that tends to be private land. Yeah. And so I can foresee, you know, without tipping the hat too much, you know, you have a, a you know, you have this space of environment, sustainability and governance, ESG. It's a pretty pretty controversial area if it, yeah. if it comes with regulation, very controversial, but there's also this, you know, entities, corporations, funders wanting to do good and mm-hmm. where do they put their resources? And I can see biodiversity being a place where folks would want to park their energy and resources and how to, how to create mechanisms to channel that into projects like we've talked about at a grand scale. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just talking about Paradise Valley, but right. if you put a, put a bow around the greater Yellowstone ecosystem or the Rocky Mountain West, um, I think you could convince entities with the means and resources to invest in all these little projects around there. And there's no, you know, uh, nature is fluid and dynamic, right? Uh, Man, human, we're geometric, right? You know, Yellowstone is a square. (laughs) We we created Yellowstone as beautiful as it is as a box and nature did not abide, right? And so that's where the greater Yellowstone ecosystem came right. I think the solutions to conservation long-term are going to be fluid like nature's fluid and they're going to be mm-hmm. dynamic and flexible. And so there's not going to be one, this one thing where we say, well, that is, that's what we got to use in this whole region or in this whole Valley. Yeah. And so there's a lot of time and energy that is, it's going to be taken to work with say private landowners to think through some of these tools. But you, you said it, where do you get the funding? Where do you get the resources from? Yeah. So I think there's, Looking forward, you know, one of the things I've been looking towards as I look towards sort of these creating these markets for conservation, mm-hmm. that's something that that I'm, I think about a lot, and the opportunity for biodiversity, and um, you you could do like, look, God bless the farmers of America, you could do a carbon soil sequestration program in some farm in Iowa, but. Uh, these landscapes out here and the ranches, and it's just spectacular. And to invest in, you know, a landscape where grizzly bears and elk and wildlife are are, are part of the lifeblood of ranching that's happening and, and they're sharing habitat. And uh, that's a pretty inspiring story that I'd want to invest in yeah. if I was looking to invest in conservation. There's just not the, the mechanism or, or tools right now yeah. to take that. So uh, I'm an optimist. I'm a conservation optimist. I'm a believer that that's... Yeah. That can happen. No, I, I, I think that's why you and I share a lot of these discussions. Is we're both optimists. But you said something 
that you may not have seen my eyebrows go up, but you said invest uh, uh, market. Uh, I think you said marketplaces for conservation or markets for conservation. Some people might think you're trying to say markets for wildlife. No, we tried right. that 150 right. years ago and it didn't right. work. Right. Markets for conservation, incentives, places where conservation pays. For habitat. Markets yeah. for habitats may be the may, more appropriate term. That's what I, how I want people to think about mm -hmm. it. Because too many people will instantly say, oh, this is just markets about wildlife and privatizing wildlife, whatever. No, these are creative ways of how do we create markets, incentives, programs, whether they're public, private, some mix, some nonprofit, where conservation is now the market. Not, not the wildlife, but the conservation of habitat and space. Right. So you say right. it just, you, yep. you, you're fluent in how you say that. But well, it, markets can be a scary, for anybody right. that's been involved in the history of conservation in America, you say the term market and you think market hunter. Right. Right. It, it goes back to, to that. Um, whereas, you know, that's the beauty of PERC is like, how can you channel market forces for the betterment right. of the environment, for conservation, for the good? Yeah. And, and the origins of organization, there was kind of, oh, you can't do that capitalism can't, <laughs> that can't help the environment, but, um, and it could, and it can hurt the environment. Like mm -hmm. there's a recognition, but, but you can channel, you can create a market for conservation. And, and we didn't have that. You, you mm -hmm. think about, um, the, the sort of the programs that govern public land mm -hmm. in America, they're extractive, the Taylor grazing act, right. the minerals mm -hmm. act for mining. Yeah. Nobody envisioned somebody would pay to do conservation. So, you know, when you go to drill on land and get a lease or you go to graze land or do a timber, you have to timber, you have to graze, you have to drill. Right. There's no option to put that lease out for, for bid right. or for negotiation to do conservation or to, to do migration work and work with, um, you know, to, to modify grazing or timber patterns to enable wildlife. The laws didn't right. envision that. But here we are. Mm -hmm. You know, there are folks who would pay not to drill, you know, in Wyoming because a pronghorn herd right. moves through there. Guess what? They can't, they can't right. do that. They can't buy into that lease. They can't yeah. pay into that lease because that's, that's how those laws Imagine were set up. Were. And so one of the things that PERC is doing is this, this area called conservation leasing where mm -hmm. can we provide some flexibility to these laws that were created at the, in the early 20th century, uh, late 19th century that could enable people to pay for a conservation use of the land as opposed to an extractive use of the yeah. land. No, you, you must be reading my emails. <laughs> uh, I'm trustee of a ranch and we have a public land grazing allotment and we're trying to retire it. It's high, con high user conflict. It's turned into a high level of weeds that... We'd rather keep those weeds up on the public land and not bring them down to the base acreage. A uh, lot of predation, grizzly right. bears and wolves. I mean, this is an allotment in a wilderness area on the outskirts of Yellowstone. But the complications of trying to retire that allotment for the benefit of, you know, the, the family I'm trustee for wants to do the right, if you want to say it, the right thing. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. It is. To do that under the, a regulatory framework. Right. 
Uh, it's I, a use it or lose it yeah. proposition. So that allotment will go to somebody else, yeah. not retired, but they'll they'll be using it. And yeah, and so you know, people go to this amazing fishing place, and if the wind is blowing a tree down because there's been big fire there in 2006, now the trees are falling down. They fall on the fence. These cattle go down into the riparian area where everyone camps and fishes. The very first place they do is they come walking down to the ranch headquarters. Hey, <laughs> your cows, you know, are in my campground or in my camp spot. And uh, the family recognizes that and they want to get out of that deal. But you talk about difficult. That's right. I'm the person that they're like, Randy, you got to take care of this. You, you do all these land trades. You, you're involved in all this stuff. That's what we want you to do for us. All right. I, if you would have told me it would be that hard for right. a private landowner to try to do something that's beneficial for conservation on public land, right. I would have said, no, it can't be that hard. Right. Well, now. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, when you bring it, that stuff up, it's like, yeah, you're reading my mail, Brian. Yeah. Right. No, it's, and what, and what if, I mean, retirement of the lease aside, what if organizations wanted to pay to say, hey, for 20 years, we're going to change the use on that lease and we'll pay you. You know, you're mm -hmm. not, you're not going to run cattle up there. We're going to have, we're going to open up to outdoor recreation. We're going to manage it as such. And, mm -hmm. you know, it'll be, you'll get an annual payment for that happening. That, you know, it won't work for every rancher, but some ranchers might say, right. that's a pretty good deal. I might not need that lease as intensively you know, through the cycles of, of ranching for yeah. the next year or two. And yeah, well, they, those kind of things open my eyes to how much work we have yet yep. to do and how many, and when I say work, these are really opportunities. Every, every one of these represent an opportunity. And, yeah. uh, I hope you guys keep working on them. Uh, we will. Hope you keep taking my phone calls. Or, no, we will. Or responding to my emails if I, I have a question. I love coming here. I really do. And uh -huh. you, you just you do such great work, Randy. And oh. I, I respect everything that uh, that you do in contributing to the conservation oh. discussions and to holding up the sportsman community. Um, I'm I'm a sportsman through and through. I used to, you know, yeah. chair a, a state fish and wildlife agency. I'm on. Yeah. I'm a professional member of Boone and Crockett. I'm on the board of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. And, um, yeah. but I also love our landowners and private mm -hmm. stewards and, and uh, ranchers and farmers as well. And it's a natural, there's some natural alliances that can occur. And, and you bringing me here and us talking about some of these solutions is a great way to yeah, forge those, forge those relationships and bonds and commonalities. Yeah. Uh, that's the hope because too much volume gets put on the edges, the fringes, whatever you want to call it. You know, the people who want to grab the torches and pitchforks, they seem to always get the volume or the spotlight. I try to use my platforms to say, no, where, where's the crazy middle that's actually working on solutions? Where are the adults in yeah. the room is what we like to say. <laughs> so, well, thanks so much, Brian. Really appreciate it. Uh, if ever there's ways that hunters and private individuals can contribute to this fund as it, as it matures, uh, keep me updated on that. I'd love to share that with my audience of how they could do that if ever that becomes a possibility. That'd so. be great. Yeah. I mean, if they want to donate to Perk, they can go online. We're www.perk.org and uh, we'll put those funds aside straight for the compensation fund. Great. Yeah. Well, 
Enjoy. Stay warm. Thank you. No uh, more minus 42 degree days boy, for us, uh, I hope. <laughs> I hope not. You know, I, I moved from northern Minnesota. That's where I grew up. And we used to have some of those days. And I thought they were in my rearview mirror. But that stretch we had right over Christmas there was... I, I, I view it through the eyes of, oh, man, look at these animals. They got to try live through this. Yeah. And now we've pushed them even further to the fringes of, you know, the margins of their habitat. It's just harder and harder for them. I'm like, oh, man, I, I know we can't feed these things, but I, I wish I could invite them in and warm them <laughs> up or, or give them some, some high-energy pellets to get through it. But, um, you know, thanks so much. You, you really got it. Appreciate it. You got it. Thanks, Randy. Thanks for being here, folks. When the sun came shining and I was strolling And the leaf fields waving and the dust clouds rolling As the fog was lifting, a voice was chatting This land was made for you and me For you and